All right. Well, I guess we can get started. So that uh, it's a very long day for you, I know. So I appreciate your graciousness and hanging in for yet one more session. Uh, I guess we'll just start with a word of prayer. Ask God's blessing upon our time, and then we'll talk about uh, Luther and the church. So, Father God, again, we're just grateful for this beautiful day. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the gift of another day. We thank you for the gift of fellowship with one another. I thank you for these folks. I thank you for the ministries that they represent. I pray your good hand of blessing upon them as they seek to serve. I pray that you would bless their efforts and that you would be honored and glorified in their ministry. We commit our time to you. We do thank you for these reformers, not not to put them up on some pedestal, but because they so uh, clearly point us past themselves and point us to Christ, our faithful shepherd. So we pray that uh, we would be encouraged by one another, that we would learn together, and that our our fellowship would be sweet with one another, and may it be sweet to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I think you have a handout. Uh, Mike graciously made these all available to you. And uh, I copied this out of a book on Martin Luther. It's a book called Martin Luther, a Guided Tour of His Life and Thought. And I don't think the author minds that I copied this out of the book because I, I wrote it, so I can do what I want. <laughs> you have my permission. <laughs> but you have my permission, so you can they can do whatever they want. Uh <clears throat> You know, this I, I thought I'd talk about this because I think it gets at what the church is about. And then I thought maybe we could sort of make this more seminar-ish format. You've been so gracious sitting there listening to me prattle on for the last three-plus hours of sessions that it might be helpful to, to make this a bit more interactive, especially as the afternoon hour wears on here. And it might help me, too, to understand how this might connect with your setting. So, so feel free to jump in here, interact, ask questions, make it interactive. I may very well just sort of step back and, and see if there's some input of things. But when, uh, when I was originally presented with this as an idea of the three sessions and then a fourth session geared towards ministry leaders and pastors, I thought, why not look at what Luther was up to as a pastor and how over the course of his pastoral life, and different circumstances, different issues that came up, Luther thought about this subject of the true marks of the church. Um, now, just to set the context for what this discussion was, before the Reformation, there was never a discussion. The true church was the Catholic church. If you were to stop somebody in a, any town of any level of education or awareness and say, What's, where's the church, or what is the church, they would point to the building. Right, And if they were in a town with a cathedral, you could see it from wherever you were. And you'd say, well, what is the true church? That. That's the true church. It was the only game in town. It was the only building in town. There weren't these questions, right? Well, now all of a sudden, the reformers are on the scene, and now this is a question. What is the true church? Is it the church the Reformation is espousing, or is it the church that has always been, always will be, always was, always is, and always will be? which is the true church. And so very central to these reformers was debating this idea of the marks of the true church. And we normally center around two, the preaching of the word, which is also to say the gospel, and the sacraments. Those are the two marks. Now just to sidetrack off Luther for a second, down in Geneva, Calvin held to those two, the, the preaching of the word and the two sacraments, but implicit for Calvin was church discipline. Because, and if you know anything about Calvin, in fact, part of the, I, meant, I alluded to this earlier, the debate that got between Calvin and Geneva, uh, part of it was Calvin was insisting on the Lord's Supper, the discipline related to the Lord's Supper, be brought under the control of the church and not under the control of the town council. And Calvin very much understood 
the sacrament as necessitating church discipline. It fit with his program of being pastoral and not just a preacher, of being a pastor and not just a preacher. In fact, he had a plan to sort of divide the city up. He, his threefold plan was rejected by the city. And uh, one of the pieces of that plan was to divide the city up so that there would be these parish pastors that were responsible for no more than 50 people as you went about the city. Very clever, I think, on Calvin's part, almost like a small group, small care group situation of elders, pastors appointed to these small parishes throughout the city so that there would be somebody who had a close pulse on that person's Christian walk. And that that would be linked up to their taking of the Lord's Supper. When Knox comes to Geneva, the Marian exiles, and if you want to know about Mary, just ask Pat's son, Owen, and he'll tell you all about Mary. He told me stuff I didn't know about Mary that apparently he learned from my book that I didn't know. (laughs) That's right. I write it to my kids the other day. I'm like, who writes this stuff? It's awful. But, um, but, but, but you know, they leave because of the Marian persecutions and go to Geneva. And um, Calvin, uh, I know I'm getting sidetracked here, but if you walk around the city of Geneva, you'll notice this, that there's a lot of, a lot of houses where the fourth floor doesn't match the third floor. And Geneva was, was a city that was landlocked because of its walls. But all these Genevan refugees came in and they didn't know where to put them. They literally took the roofs off their houses and went up and added floors to their houses so that they could take in Genevan exiles or take in Marian exiles. That tells you something about Calvin's preaching and what it did. That by the uh, time of these Marian exiles, that they were, well, I mean, imagine doing that to your own house. Here come these exiles. We've got to put them somewhere. Okay, let's knock the roof off, add a fourth floor, and then they'll just stay up there. And when you walk around the old town, you can see it. You can see it in these houses that the windows were different. They just, the, the three floors are contiguous, and then this odd fourth floor up top. So all these Geneva exiles were there. And when Knox goes back to Scotland and it fi- founds what then becomes essentially Presbyterianism, uh, Knox makes what was implicit in Calvin explicit and speaks of the three marks of a true church preaching sacraments and church discipline but it is not all that different from Cal- it's there in Calvin but it's there implicitly Calvin or Knox is just putting it on the surface Luther from 1520 uh, in his work on the papacy in Rome uh, advocated the two marks of the true church that then Calvin follows a decade later in Geneva And the two marks are the Word of God and the sacraments. Now, he broke them up, but the Word of God and the sacraments. And even later in 1527, he even went on to say this, and I give you that quote there, the only perpetual and infallible mark of the church was always the Word. Like, even among the two marks, for him, it's the preaching of the Word. The sermon tomorrow uh, gave it the title, We Can Spare Everything Except the Word. That's a Luther quote, a direct quote from Luther. But what's interesting to me is that as Luther continued to live, he kept expanding these marks. (laughs) And from one standpoint, I guess we can be glad that he died. (laughs) Because the list would just keep getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) I was somewhere, I was at Master's College last Reformation year, uh, this time last year. And I said something about Calvin. I said something like, I'm so glad he died because he kept adding additions to the institutes, you know, throughout his life. And they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I made a comment in the Master's College Chapel. I'm so glad Calvin died because had he lived, he would have just kept adding to the institutes and I had to read the thing in seminary. Well, sure enough, some master's college student puts on their blog, quote from chapel, I'm so glad Calvin died. (laughs) (laughs) So don't you go putting on your blog, I'm so glad Luther died. (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Out of context. But what's interesting to me, and I just want to look at this, because I think this shows us something about what Luther thought the church was about. 1539 is a text. It's one of my favorite texts of Luther. It's called On the Councils in the Church. And he wrote this because he was challenged that what he's really doing is doing away with all of church history. The sort of argument that I was making against American evangelicalism that were all historical was being made against Luther. And in defense of this, Luther wrote On the Councils and the Church. To defend the idea that holding the Sola Scriptura does not mean then that you just do away with and jettison 1,500 years of church history in Luther's case. So on the councils in the church is actually a text of Luther that is about how necessary tradition is for the church, but it's just not authoritative. Right? So we sort of have this, the Catholic idea is tradition is authoritative. In typical American evangelicalism, Tradition is unnecessary. Luther sort of made an argument that tradition is actually helpful and even necessary, but not just it's just not authoritative. And he argues that in On the Councils of the Church. And in the course of that, <clears throat> he gives seven. Now, uh, really, it's six. But it's the Word of God, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And then the power of the keys... Now, the power of the keys has to do with absolution and forgiveness. And this is what gave the church all its power. Through the sacrament of the penance, they had all this power. And that was the power of the keys, the keys that, you know, Christ gave to Peter. And it's upon Peter, the person in apostolic succession that Christ builds his church is the Catholic argument. And what Luther is talking about there with the power of the keys. Now, I didn't give you this quote or I didn't review this quote with you, but back on the Luther quotes, I have this, it's right at this uh, center, page 10 of the nice booklet Mike put together for you. And it's the top of the page. And this might strike you as odd for something for Luther to say. But anyone who is to find Christ must first find the church. How could anyone know where Christ is and what faith is in him unless he knew where his believers are? If anyone is to find Christ, he must find him in the church. Uh, Calvin's going to come to say, anyone who wants to call God his father must first call the church his mother. And this does not sound like something reformers should be saying. Right? But what are they talking about? They're talking about the one true church, not the Roman Catholic church. So when Luther is saying the power of the keys, he is talking about the one true church that this is the institution that God has blessed and through which God promises to work. Right? But it's not just the Holy Catholic Church with all of its hierarchy that is the church through which God works and blesses. That's the distinction. And then he has calling and ordination of pastors. Now he put this in there because in between the early 1520s and 1539, does anybody know what happened down at Zurich? In the late 1520s, a certain movement happened at Zurich. And they all came out to Lancaster now. This is the Anabaptists. So in between these early writings on the church and where he finds himself in the 1530s, there's the Anabaptist movement. And what really bothered Luther about the Anabaptists is they did away with an educated clergy. Now, a lot of them had been educated. Meadow Simons was a Catholic priest. Conrad Grebel, who baptized George Blaurock in Zurich in 1525, which is the beginning of the Anabaptist movement, because he baptized him again in the river, uh, rejecting the infant baptism. Um, and then, you know, going on from there, the separation of church and state, etc., of the Anabaptists. Very quickly on, even though they themselves were educated, uh, saw an educated clergy as worldly and as the worldly model, and advocated against an educated clergy. And this made Luther very nervous. Luther's Sola Scriptura principle is never intended to mean a substitute for the office of teacher. That Luther sees the, the God-ordained office of teacher as crucial to the church. 
And he goes back, you know, to the Second Timothy 2.2 principle that Paul trained Timothy and Timothy is to train faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And uh, actually, that's that, that line there has the idea of to hand over. In fact, if, if you look at it with me in Second Timothy 2.2, uh, it says, uh, talking about the you know the personal relationship that Paul has with Timothy, you then my child, and you just sense Paul's affection, the warmth Paul has for Timothy. Uh, at Second Timothy two one, he says, "You then my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus." And then two two, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust. The Greek word is paradidomai, to give over or to hand over. The Latin word is tradidit. The Latin translation, this the, the Vulgate of this, is tradidit, from which you clearly hear the English word tradition. Tradition means to hand over, to give over. And so Luther interpreted this, Second uh, Timothy 2.2, 2, as a formal activity done by the church in the official formal training of pastors who will then ensure what the early church called the depositum fide, the deposit of faith, the gospel, that it will be passed on from one generation to the next. And for Luther, that meant an ordained clergy, because an ordained clergy was a trained clergy. And the one thing that made him really nervous about the Anabaptists was an untrained clergy. He thought that was just a recipe for disaster that would just let the wheels come off the wagon. Uh, down the road. So in 1539, as he's looking at this, he is looking at ordination of pastors is his way of talking about the training of a clergy and how crucial that is for uh, the next generation of the church. Yeah? Would some of that also be fueled by the fact that a lot of the things they were saying were heretical things? Well, yeah, I mean, he saw he saw problems enough in what they were saying let alone where this could lead. But when you scratch beneath the surface of Luther's, and he said some vicious things about the Anabaptists. I always got to be careful when I go visit my Amish farmer neighbors. I have this great Lutheran t-shirt. I was going to wear it today, and I was going to pop back my buttons and show you Luther. But um, it would just be too much, so I didn't do it. But um, <laughs> but um, I always make sure when I go visit my Amish neighbors that I don't have my Luther shirt on. I try not to wear my Luther shirt around them because, you know, they persecuted the Anabaptists. But when you scratch beneath the surface, the thing that really does bother him is this untrained clergy. But, it, but yeah, it was because he saw it in its own time leading to these heretical ideas that he deemed heretical and then saw it as only having problems for the, for the future. And then he has this prayer, praise, and thanks to God that a mark of the church is essentially what he's talking about here is a devotional life. I think one of the things that concerned Luther was, you know, you got to put, you got to understand Luther contextually. He was all about the the trappings of monastic life. You know, when when he comes to to the Reformation, he he adopts the idea of a daily church service because he was so programmed with the daily mass that he just thinks that 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 daily need to nurture and to come together is just crucial. And I think one of the things that he was concerned about is that with the break from the Catholic Church, the idea of, well, we don't want it to be rote. We don't want the prayers to become rote, just as they were rote. Exactly, pendulumitis. Absolutely. We don't want it to become rote, so we just won't do it. Right? And what Luther wanted to do was make a strong case for those devotional practices that he saw were the best of the monastic world that he rejected because of its bad theology. But he's trying to restore this idea of the devoted life back to the church and to the Christian life. And then seven has to do with this cruciform life that I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer picks up on Luther, that the cross and persevering is what we are called to. You know, a, a Christ says this, that a disciple is not above his master, right? And so James and John are vying for power to be at the right hand. And Christ is trying to teach them that discipleship is not about power and prominence. 
that it's about some, something else. And daily taking up our cross and following after me, following after him. So enduring the cross and spiritual struggle. And that too was something that he appreciated about his monastic experience that he saw no longer present in this swing of the pendulum away from what had been. So he tries to pull those back together. Um, so that's in 1539. Now, in 1540, well, any questions about those or comments on that? Or questions? You can find that book. Uh, it's, it's, it's called a book, but it's probably more about like 40, 50 pages if you print it out. You can find it online. A great source for, uh, for a lot of this stuff is uh, sharing this website with somebody. I don't think he's here. Uh, ccel.org. If you're familiar with that, if you used it before, it's Christian Classic and Ethereal Library, and a lot of Luther's stuff is on there. You can find the 95 Theses in Latin, German, and English on there. So if you want to read them in the original Latin, there they are for you. If you want to see pox, pox, and crux, crux, there it is. Main questions on those? On the councils in the church? Yeah. You know, this is one of the sticky points for for Luther. Um, I'd say two things about Luther. He was not Roman Catholic. Three things about Luther's view of baptism. He was not Roman Catholic in his view. The Roman Catholic view was that infant baptism removes the stain of original sin. And we still have our own sins to contend with. But infant baptism undoes original sin. Right. He rejects that. I think as Lutheranism has developed, it has viewed infant baptism as salvific. If you attend Lutheran funerals, I've attended a couple, and you'll hear the Lutheran pastor say, we know they're in heaven because... On such and such a date, at such and such a church, this person was baptized, so we take comfort in it. I don't think you can pin that directly on Luther. I think the main person responsible for that is Melanchthon, to be honest with you, and later Luther. The third thing I can say about Luther's view of baptism is he hadn't worked it out like the Presbyterians are going to work it out, or like Calvin's going to work it out, to see it as a sign of the covenant and the idea of being covenant children, which is sort of the Presbyterian view of infant baptism. But having said those three things, I can't really honestly say what Luther's view was. Right? I, I think he wasn't those things, but to really get at what his actual understanding of baptism is, I think is a little fuzzy. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, I, I've heard that later in his life, he, it, it might be akin to the idea that later in his life, he, he like said, he, you know, burn all my books, is actually more than just talk. He, he really didn't think those ideas should have lasting value in the life of the church. That he thought the only two ideas of his that he wanted to have lasting value in the church are the catechism and bondage of the will. Because bondage of the will to him was the centerpiece of the Reformation. So all I can say is Luther so stressed justification, so stressed justification, that it cannot be compatible with a Catholic view of infant baptism or a later Lutheran view of infant baptism. But how he worked that out, I think it was pretty fuzzy. And part of the problem here is Luther was not a systematic theologian. He just wasn't. He's not a Calvin. Calvin's going to work it out. He's going to have ideas coalesce and make sure A leads to B and B leads to C. But that's not Luther. So, yeah, I mean, I wish I could say definitively more, but I, I think that's about the best I can do on that one. Yeah, Dustin. Uh, no, he, he disagreed with their uh, separation of church and state. As much as he thought the state was problematic... He disagreed with the church and state issue. Uh, he disagreed over the uh, the baptism issue. He disagreed over their teaching 
the the not having a, a trained clergy uh, issue. Um, he was not a pacifist, so he disagreed with their pacifism. So pretty much, you know, down the line, the Anabaptists were problematic for him. Uh, no, not no. Luther wasn't. Believers' baptism wasn't because what the what the uh, what the Anabaptists were doing was not so much believers' baptism as much as they were doing a wholesale rejection of Catholicism. I mean, true believers' baptism is a Puritan idea. That in terms of the roots, like I think this is the mistake a lot of American Christians make that that American Christians think the roots of the Baptist idea is the Anabaptists, and it's really not. The true roots are English Puritans who, over time, couldn't coalesce the idea of infant baptism with what they were reading in the text. That baptism was a conscience, conscious declaration, symbolic of what Christ had done at their salvation. And they couldn't see an infant being able, capable of doing that. But that's not how the Anabaptists got there. The Anabaptists got there more from a wholesale rejection of Roman Catholicism and then reading about believers' baptism in Scripture. But, it, but I think it's sort of a different, not quite the same route. And the Baptists, like Baptists in America, are that English Puritan. It was the London Baptist Confession of, I forget the date. If my students were here, somebody would Google it and say the date. There you go, 1679. Which was essentially... Essentially, it's a plagiarism of the Westminster Confession, and all it does is change the church government one and change the baptism one. Otherwise, the London, ba London Baptist Confession is Westminster down the line. But it rejects Presbyterian form of government. 1689. And then, if, and then, it, and then in America, there's the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which cleans out the monarchy language of the London Confession. And that's the true roots of Baptist thought in America. Not that's the direct line of descent, <clears throat> more so than the the uh, Anabaptist line. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. The Lord's Supper for for Luther. He gets called consubstantiation, but he himself rejected that term because substantiation, that's an Aristotelian discussion. Substance is a uh, technical term within Aristotelian logic. And so uh, Luther rejected that. What he did say was that Christ is with, above, below, around the sacrament. And the debate came between him and Zwingli, and Zwingli argued for what we call the memorial view, or the Zwinglian view, as opposed to the Catholic view of transubstantiation. So when the, priest, when the priest pronounces, the wafer becomes the body and the blood becomes the blood of Christ. That Zwingli argued for the memorial view. Luther disagreed with that. They met at the Marburg Colloquy at the city of Marburg in 1529 and went their separate ways. Calvin and then the German church and the Swiss churches didn't come together. That after Marburg, they just didn't come together. Calvin wasn't there, but he corresponded with Luther about five different occasions over the issue of the Lord's Supper. And in Calvin's view, he expressed it as the spiritual presence. That when we partake communion, it isn't as if Christ comes down and is present with us. In Calvin's view, when we partake communion, it's as if we go to heaven and experience the presence of Christ in heaven. It's a foretaste of the future marriage supper of the Lamb. The eternal heavenly marriage supper of the Lamb. Communion is a shadow of that, a foretaste of that. And Luther makes the comment to Calvin that he wishes Calvin had been there because maybe this view would have been able to bring him and Zwingli together. So Luther's view of... But I will say this. The reason why Luther doesn't like Zwingli's view primarily is because he thinks it's going to lead to a lackadaisical attitude towards communion. It's going to lead to a take-it-or-leave-it view of communion. People aren't going to take it seriously. If you read what he says about, if you want to read what he says about communion, read his larger catechism, sometimes just called the German Catechism. 
In the larger catechism, he says, um, we're in a death struggle with our soul, with Satan, and we don't realize it. He's a roaring lion out to get us. And when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's nourishment for our soul. We need this because of the battle that we're engaged in. And what concerned him about the Zwinglian view is that it would lead people to take communion too lightly. Now, there's nothing about Zwingli's view that demands you take it lightly, but Luther saw it that way. And he has a very high view of the Lord's Supper. And if you've ever gone to a Lutheran church, you know every week they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Luther's idea was that the service should be uh, preaching first. He always wanted preaching first. And then singing so that you sang as a response to the sermon you just heard. And then you took the Lord's Supper. And he argued for an hour-long service. And the sermon, 30-minute sermons, is what Luther actually advocated. In fact, he's got a great line about preaching. And he says, when I, when I, uh, when I no longer have something to say, I stop talking. That's his golden rule for preaching. And I love that. You know, we've all heard preaching where you just, oh, you should have stopped a long time ago. Not your preaching, Pat. Not your preaching. I'm not talking about your preaching. I'm talking about other people's preaching that they've heard on podcasts. Big answer to say, you should look at what he has to say. I like his words in there. I read them from time to time. I'm not a Lutheran in my view of the Lord's Supper. I'm closer to Calvin than any of them. But, um, but uh, uh, I like to read what Luther has to say. If I know that there's going to we do communion quarterly, and if I know there's going to be communion the next Sunday, sometimes I pull out Luther's catechism and just read it. centuries the church participated in transubstantiation. Right. Right. Understanding that the gates of Hades will never prevail and yet the massive heresy it yeah. seems like the church was married to right. for that length right. of time. Right. And then you have different ideas that come out. Yeah. How is it <clears throat> I mean I, I'm baffled in thinking yeah. about church history. How is it that the church was able to engage in that for centuries? Right. Um, and then yeah. Well, I think what you have to say is there's always a remnant. There's always the true church. So what we're talking about when we talk about the institutional church, the institutional church went awry, but it doesn't mean that even within that institutional church there weren't remnants of the true church. And I think God is even merciful and gracious to work with the true church even though it's doing bad practices. I mean, it's not ideal, and you don't want to advocate being sloppy about ecclesiology. But even in sloppy practices, God can work in people's lives. And so I think you just have to hold to the idea that while institutionally it's awry, there's always a remnant. The gates of hell are not prevailing in 800, 900, thousands, 11, 12, 1300s. They're, they're always there. You know. Just the sad thing is that by and large, we just don't see a whole lot of witness to that. You have your bright spots, your Anselms, your Bernard of Clairvaux come along. Uh, some say Thomas Akempis, um, you know, your Wycliffe's, your Peter Waldo's. But over the course of a thousand years, you know, we just, we get two hands and we can count them all. So, so you know, there's a witness there that isn't um, known, that's a faithful remnant. You know, I think we just have to see that. It's like Elijah with the, you know, I'm the only one. Yeah, and I think like I think it's even true today. I mean, I don't want to get myself into too much hot water around here. I don't know how you think about all this stuff. But I think there are evangelicals in the Roman Catholic Church who who are true Christians, but they're for whatever reason, either knowingly or unknowingly, they're within that Roman Catholic Church and participating in it. Um and yet I still think they can be in Christ, you know. Uh guess i have a harder time with like priests in the roman catholic church who call themselves evangelical i just i just have personally i just have a harder time with that but um but but 
as far as people being in the Roman Catholic Church that are evangelicals, I think that's probably likely true of today, even today. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but it's the best I can sort of muster. Yeah, Mike. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I think good worship is a key. I think good, solid, substantial worship that has weight to it is a key. You know, there's uh, like this, the music, and I'm not just saying this because like the music that was done here this morning was beautiful music. And I think, you know, the idea is you can't just put everything into six words. Uh, Keith Getty uh, talks about the difference between songs and hymns. You know, and hymns like carry ideas through. You know, you like develop an idea and and there's meat to it and substance and that's that's part of what worship should be, you know. So I think one is just worship and what worship looks like the actual worship time, the music time and what it looks like. But I think the other piece to it is the C.S. Lewis talks about the difference between being clever and humor. And, you know, it's easy to be clever, you know. And I think there is a cleverness to a lot of the worship that just doesn't seem befitting of the person that we are worshiping. Um, You know, I mentioned that text out of Habakkuk. I think it's Habakkuk the end of Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. And then there's Ecclesiastes 5, and Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 5 says, um, when you come near to the house of God, keep your words few, because you are in heaven, and or you are on earth, and God is in heaven. And that to me is such a fundamental piece of worship, of our relationship to God. God is in heaven and we are on earth. I mean, it just seems like those those ideas aren't emphasized in a lot of pockets of American evangelicalism. And it seems not that we have to be somber, heavy, you know, you know, you don't have to be Presbyterian. That's a joke. Come on, next joke of myself. But there is something to the to the weight of that. Yeah. Um and I think there's a, just a flippancy or a casualness that just isn't healthy, I think. So, and again, not, not that, you know, it's like a funeral service. Right? But there is a gravitas to God that somehow we should be reflecting as we come into his presence together. Calvin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, it seemed to especially be popping back up again last year with the anniversary of Calvin, um, his 500th anniversary, uh, that uh, that sort of got to trump up what Calvin's contribution actually is. But a lot of it is... Uh, back to the idea of capitalism and the free market economy, which Calvin at Geneva seemed to be an advocate of, that was a true break from the sort of economic systems that had dominated Christendom and the medieval era, and that those economic systems came to us through Calvin. That's the one avenue. The other avenue is that through Calvin's influence primarily at Princeton, through the middle colony Presbyterians at Princeton, and especially 
through Witherspoon, whose primary pupil was James Madison, who then drafted the uh, um, the the, um, the three branches of government idea, that that was the brainchild of Madison, was directly a result of Calvinist understanding of depravity of human nature that needed this system of checks and balances in the government. And when you look at American government, what essentially makes it unique is its break from a parliamentary system to the three branches of government and limiting the power of the presidency um, because of its sense of depravity. So that's the argument, that it comes through capitalism and what Calvin was doing at Geneva and um, then through the Scottish Presbyterians, through Witherspoon, Princeton, Madison, on into America. That those are the ideas that are really at the heart of the so-called American experiment, and they get traced back to Calvin. That's my take on where that all came from. Odd. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think we need it. But I think it's part of those things of trying to trump up his contribution because it was his anniversary year. But but yeah, I think that's where it's coming from. I think the whole <laughs> Yeah, that's right. The the Madison the Madison thing is true. I mean I think Madison got at this three branches because of distrust. Um you know, and the idea that you have to build in distrust for a society to work. I think that's helpful. Uh, let me just really quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call today. But on the, the next column there, this was a text that Luther wrote. Hanswurst is a name he made up. Hans is like the German version of Johnny, and Wurst is what we had for lunch. So it's actually Johnny Sausage is what he's calling. And it's part of just Luther's great sense of humor. So Johnny Sausage is the conglomerate of all of his opponents. <laughs> And he is writing this book against them. It's just classic. And he ends up personifying his opponents in this mythological figure, Johnny Sausage. <laughs> I love Luther. You know, if there's like one guy in church history that I'd love to have a meal with, it's Martin Luther. Not, not Edwards, not even Calvin, you know. He'd only he'd order a half a sandwich and just nitpick if it were John Calvin. But Luther, you know, he'd be ordering all over the menu, and it would just be great. Uh, the office of preaching God's word, baptism, Lord's supper, power of the keys. Then he goes down to some of these interesting things. The Apostles' Creed should be said at every service. The Lord's Prayer should be said, and then he adds this: honor to temporal authorities. Again in response to the Anabaptists. And he saw that as un, unweaving the fabric of society, what they were up to. And then, this is a great one, number eight, in praise of marriage. I mean, think about that, especially in our day. I mean, I see this among my students, you know, and I'm at a Bible college, a conservative Bible college, and, I, and we're getting these students from broken homes. Much, much more. I've only been there 14 years, but much more now than when I was there 14 years ago. I mean, just bad situations kids are coming from. And even more so, I mean, no, none of these kids have meals anymore with their family. The family meal is just gone. You know, it's all McDonald's bags in the cars. They go from this thing to that thing. You know, and when Luther's talking about in praise of marriage, he's talking about how central that family institution is and that the church should be setting it up on a pedestal and doing all it can to see that this institution that God has ordained, the first institution God has ordained the family, be central. And then he says suffering. That suffering of the true church is a mark of the church. This is something Americans were just not suited up for. And then lastly, not seeking revenge from persecution. This is a lesson Luther had to learn because he was constantly vilified again and again and again. Constantly vilified. 
I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad's a Baptist pastor, so here I am, a Presbyterian, as my dad was an independent, the only true Baptist you can be, he was in, is an independent Baptist pastor. But when I was growing up, there was a, a couple families in the church that just were, well, uh, they ended up leaving the church and they all repented and came back, but they just wreaked havoc in the church. They were sending anonymous letters to deacons in the church, you know, saying, your your wife uh, dresses like a teenager. I remember seeing that. My dad left it out on the kitchen table, and uh, it, it was mailed to one of the deacons. and was telling the deacon that his wife dresses like a, a teenager with cut-out letters from a magazine. And this is the kind of stuff that was going on. And I was six, seven, eight. I mean, you know, I knew it was going on, but I didn't, I couldn't understand the full depth of all this stuff. And I distinctive, distinctly remember when those families came back and how, uh, how my dad just hugged them. I just, I can vividly remember him hugging these families when they came back to the church. And it just struck me you know, well, right then and there, I knew I could not be a pastor. <laughs> I just knew dispositionally I was not cut out for this. I'm going into the academy. I just knew it right then and there. But, you know, there's something to this. I mean, pastors take hits. Pastors take hits. There's something to it. And, and, and we want to, you know, defend ourselves. When we're vilified, we want to vindicate ourselves. And, and that was a hard lesson. I mean, Luther was vilified constantly. Um, and he had to learn that personally and, and learn you know, what it means not to seek revenge. It's easier said than done. But he sees that as a true mark. Again, following Christ. So, What you see here is Luther's moving beyond a basic preaching of the word and looking at how the church actually lives and functions and trying to say this is what should mark the church. But again, aren't we all glad he died? Just kidding. So, for what it's worth, uh, you, you have that to, to look at, Marks of the True Church, to think about what it means to be the church and what, how Luther can tell us what the church looks like. Yeah, Pat. Just on a practical level. Um, yeah, yeah. Tradition is necessary, but not authoritative. Yeah. I think in our kinds of churches, we're seeing the value of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, everybody has to be sensitive in their own context where they go too far and always sort of have their antenna up and always be self-aware and self-critical. I think those are just crucial pieces. But I think it goes back to that Spurgeon quote. You know, the idea is the Holy Spirit is a corporate gift. And there is something to that. You know, we, we can learn from our brothers and sisters. But when we are incapable of doing something new... <laughs> or incapable of trying to repackage something, then it seems like we've become enslaved to tradition. Uh, so I think there's, there is that sort of healthy balance of recognizing the need to contextualize, but yet also realize that we have resources that we can draw upon. Yeah. Like, the, the 21st century is not the 16th century. So if we were to take what Calvin did at Geneva and just replicate that in our churches, it wouldn't work. Or if we were to take what the Puritans did in their churches and just replicate it in our churches, I don't think it would work because we're in two different eras. And, you know, we can get frustrated. Why isn't my congregation like Edward's congregation? Or why can't they handle an hour sermon because Edward's preached for four hours? You know, it's just, it's apples and oranges, I think. And I think we just got to recognize that there, there is such a thing as to the context. And even these guys contextualized. You know, it wasn't as if they were not children of their age, too, as they brought the gospel to bear. So it seems like the balance is between connecting, but yet recognizing we have these resources. I, I think when it becomes something that, that drives us, or we look to it instead of looking to Scripture, then that's where we've crossed the line. You know? I'll give you one example. I won't name names, but in a worship book, 
a book on worship and the whole worship wars a few years back, written by somebody that I have a great respect for. There were no biblical references in the book. All the references were to the Westminster Standards and to Calvin and to practices at Geneva. And I had to actually, I got, I was able to review the manuscript for the publisher, and that was one of my comments as a reviewer. There's no biblical argument here. So his whole argument for what worship should look like was based 100% on tradition and not on Scripture. And I, I think that's problematic. You know, and I think that folks that have traditions that are meaningful to them can succumb to that. So it's definitely a cautionary tale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I'd say a couple of things. I think one is don't shy away from original sources. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, introduction to Athanasius on the Incarnation, and he said, for every new book I read, I read an old book. And I think we have so many great new resources today that we can shy away from old sources. So I don't think you have to quite have a one-for-one -one law, but don't forget old books. And like Justin Taylor and Kelly Capick have put out these new Owen, editions of Owen. Those are beautiful. A lot of people are doing that now, sort of repackaging, editing some of these older works. So don't shy away from the classics. Don't shy away from the primary sources. Uh, and then as far as authors go, um, you know, I'm more and more convinced that there's just every once in a while there's only a few people in each generation that have the ability to sort of rise above their circumstance and speak to the church as a whole. Um, and one of those has got to be John Piper. I mean, I think that Piper clearly stands out. So, I, you know, anything he writes, I try to get a hold of. My favorite book of his is God is the Gospel. Everybody's all kept up on desiring God. But I just love God as the gospel. I come back to that one a lot. I like C.J. Mahaney because he writes short books. <laughs> That's the joke. <clears throat> Not really. Um, but I, I like C.J. Mahaney a lot. But I, I think there are just a few people. I think Al Mohler is a pretty incisive guy. Uh, I, I, of course, like MacArthur. I would not leave here without saying I like MacArthur. I think a lot of the books you have in the library, are, you're all hitting the right pistons over there um, but just you know we, we've got such great contemporary resources that you know it helps to go back and because these guys are drawing on those sources the classics so my word of encouragement would be don't forget the old books yeah i think that about wraps it up awesome. thank you so much. well thank you this was great thank you awesome.